Hi, and welcome to September's edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhianna Morgan. Today we're going to review equine grass sickness with Dr. Scott Peary from the University of Edinburgh and learn about a novel mechanism for advancing the mare's breeding season with Dr. Barbara Murphy from University College Dublin. I'm joined by Dr. Scott Peary, an equine medicine specialist at the University of Edinburgh's Equine Hospital, with a special interest in equine grass sickness and allergic lung disease. Scott's written a review paper on equine grass sickness in this month's EVJ, highlighting the up-to-date advances in this field. Hi Scott, and thanks for joining us today. Could you give us an up-to-date overview on equine grass sickness to start off with, please? Yep, absolutely. Um, so equine grass sickness is, is a disease that will be um, familiar to many vets working in the UK and throughout Europe, um, considerably less so to, to North American um, vets where the disease has been reported over there, but is, is extremely rare indeed. Um, and it's a disease that affects grazing horses and donkeys, really all equids. Um, there's a strong pasture association and a strong seasonal association. So certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, um, we see most of the cases in the, the spring and early summer months. Um, and that varies largely from year to year, probably depending on, on climate at that particular, or in that particular year and at that particular time of year, the autonomic nervous system of the horse, although that's not exclusively the case, that uh, there, there is um, sufficient evidence and pathological evidence that other components of the nervous system, including the central nervous system, are involved as well. But from a clinical viewpoint, it's predominantly its involvement of the autonomic nervous system, which is, is relevant. And more so, it's um, the involvement of the enteric nervous system. If we consider that as an arm of the autonomic nervous system, it's the involvement of the enteric nervous system that, that makes this disease <coughs> such a feared disease amongst horse owners because it, it really determines its, its poor prognosis in, in the majority of cases. So the horse will or has the potential to survive with some deficits within its autonomic nervous system function, but as soon as we start to see uh, derangement in the enteric nervous system function, then obviously that's not compatible with life if it's, it's severe enough. So what clinical signs would we expect to see? So those horses will present with signs consistent with autonomic dysfunction, and these would include all of elevation in heart rate, um, salivation, um, bilateral ptosis, um, so dripping of the, the eyelashes predominantly, which are under smooth muscle control, um, sweating, either generalized or patchy sweating. Um, muscle fasciculations is a difficult one because it doesn't really tie in with involvement of the, the autonomic nervous system. And then most of the other signs would be uh, related to the enteric nervous system, either uh, exclusively or in combination with other aspects of the, the autonomic nervous system. For example, um, dysphagia probably has a number of um, potential underlying causes of the dysphagia that we see in the clinical cases uh, and then involvement of the small intestinal motility and the large intestinal motility resulting in, in severe cases, small bowel distension with fluid because of a lack of peristaltic motion um, and in the less severe cases um, secondary or pseudo impactions of the, the large colon um, because of a, a lack of propulsion uh, through into the small colon and rectum and those contents become very 
desiccated over a, a short period of time. So, so the, the clinical signs are wide and they're varied. Are there any clinical signs that are characteristic for grass sickness? There are no clinical signs really that are um, pathognomonic for the disease, perhaps with the exception of rhinitis sicca, which is bilateral and is, is, is a clinical sign that, that um, we can't really attribute to any other condition. Um, but all the other clinical signs when taken in isolation can really point towards a number of diseases. It's, it's really the pattern of signs and consideration of the the history that's important. So that's a kind of brief overview of the, the, the clinical pattern of the disease. As far as the um, the risk factors are concerned, like I said earlier on, there's a variety of risk factors that are recognised um, at the horse level. Uh, the important ones really would be age. Um, this is a, a disease that we see predominantly in young adult horses, so the real peak between two and seven years old. The majority of cases around four or five years old, but you know, cases up to 19, 20 have been reported um, before, but they are a, a rarity. Um, <clears throat> recent movement uh, is, is another important one. So those horses having recently moved on to uh, a new premises, particularly if that premise has uh, a history of grass sickness occurring uh, previously uh, in, in, in previous years, uh, is another major risk factor for the disease. As I said, um, coming away from the horse level, um, time of year, so spring, early summer in the northern hemisphere, um, there are some climatic risk factors as well, such as um, periods of cool, dry weather um, has been reported preceding um, outbreaks uh, of, of the, the disease. And then looking at the pasture itself, there's a, a variety of risk factors associated with that, such as increased soil, nitrogen content, um, disturbance of the pasture is, is a relatively recent one that's been identified. Um, and that was a specific question in one epidemiological study, but also one can infer from, from results of other studies um, which have shown that, for example, mechanical removal of feces from the paddock <coughs> um, was recognised as a risk factor, whereas manual removal was not, suggesting that it was not the removal of the feces, it was the manner in which it was done. So again, that, that would tie in certainly with um, disturbance of the, the soil. <coughs> Even the soil type <clears throat> has been recognised, so sandy and loamy soils uh, have a much uh, or a significantly greater uh, likelihood of, of um, <coughs> resulting in, excuse me, <coughs> in grass sickness than, for example, chalk soil and, um, and clay soil. And so there's a number of, of um, pasture-associated uh, risk risk factors um, as, as well. Um, and as far as management is concerned, the main management associated risk factors would be, you know, grazing those horses. Um, but the duration of grazing um, doesn't really seem to play a part. I mean, a lot of those horses that, that present with grass sickness are out for a considerable period um, throughout the day. But there have been a number of cases reported where those horses had um, minimal exposure to grass, maybe for an hour a day, something like that. Um, and then other management related factors would be, again, potentially related to um, uh, soil disturbance such as chain harrowing, that kind of thing, um, which is an inconsistent uh, risk factor. It's been identified in, in some studies, but not um, not in others. Um, so yeah, there's a variety of things, and, and those risk factors are appearing all the time. When, when these epidemiological studies are conducted, then it sheds more light on, on those risk factors, which are useful from a number of different um, in a num number of different ways, um, as I've already alluded to, 
um, that there is no real gold standard anti-mortem diagnosis for this disease. So you're looking at the pattern of clinical signs, but also uh, as diagnostically useful is looking at the, um, whether those horses fulfill those risk factor criteria or not. So that, that has some diagnostic worth um, considering those. Um, but also risk factors are useful from the point of view of risk avoidance strategies. Um, so if you want to implement some risk avoidance strategies after a case has been diagnosed, for example, in the short term, what do you do with the other horses? Or in the longer term, what do you do with that particular paddock or, or the, the premises in general? Um, then, then the risk factors might shed some light on, on some uh, beneficial things that might be might be considered in the in the future. And then finally, um, consideration of the risk factors might also um, and have done um, guided um, certain uh, etiological hypotheses. In other words, what do these risk factors tell us about what the, the likely cause of this disease is, which I should have mentioned at the beginning uh, remains un unknown at this particular stage. So that's an overview of the clinical signs and the risk factors associated with the disease. What determines the prognosis? The prognosis is largely dependent on the severity of disease. So um, we tend to subdivide the disease into the acute form, which is severe involvement of the entire nervous system, subacute form, which is less severe, and then the chronic form, which is less severe still. And, and these are slight misnomers in that it suggests that uh, the, the, the use of the term acute, subacute, and chronic suggests exactly that chronicity of duration of disease, but that, that's really related to the severity of the disease. And these are a continuum. So, so even though an acute case might present clinically quite distinct from a, from a chronic case, the bottom line is the pathology is exactly the same. It's just the, the, the severity of that pathology predominantly in, in the enteric nervous system that, that determines which category to go into. But um, if we stick with that categorization, acute and subacute, then these have a, a 100% mortality, these horses do not survive, and with the chronic cases, um, approximately 50% or so, 45-50% of all chronic cases um, may survive, and, and with the ones that are, you know, one is selective in treating, which is really just the, down to nursing care, then, then that success rate can increase to around 70 or 80%. Um, with with those ones, so it, it, it is a disease that carries a a very high mortality. So, what can we decipher about the etiology when more than one horse on a premises contracts the disease? Um, as far as clustering of cases is concerned, again, that varies an awful lot. In that, in in some cases, and thankfully, in the majority of cases, single horses are are, are diagnosed with the disease on that particular premise. And whether that, um, or, or what that tells us about the potential etiologies is kind of difficult to say because oftentimes after a single horse has been diagnosed or some suspicion of the disease has been raised, then, then there are managemental changes that, that take place almost immediately in a lot of cases that may reduce uh, the chances of other cases getting it. So whether it is indeed a true sporadic disease or not, it's difficult to say. But in saying that, there are some pretty tragic stories of, of four or five cases um, developing this disease within a, a short period of time on the same either premise or, or on the same the same paddock. Scott, you um in your paper you talked about uh, serum antibodies, and you said horses that suffer from grass sickness were found to have low serum antibodies associated with Clostridium antigens, whereas their healthy field companions had higher levels. 
Mm. Um, could these findings, would these findings offer um, a horse-side diagnostic test at all? Um, I think there's too much crossover, to be honest with you. I think when you look at that data, so this was something that was kind of identified uh, back in the 1990s by by Hunter and, and colleagues at Edinburgh who kind of revisited the, the whole Clostridium botulinum theory and, and part of their work laterally after looking at a lot of um, um, gastrointestinal samples for, for either the, the, the botulinum bacteria or the toxin. Um, they then moved on to look at serology in those cases and, and they found some differences and, and I guess the, the most convincing work um, recently that, that, that has then followed up on that was, was a study out of Liverpool with Helen McCarthy where um, they, this was a case control study so effectively they were looking for risk factors and one of the risk factors that they were trying to, to um, address largely because I think that, that botulinum theory or hypothesis had, had been revisited um, was quite sensibly this one of antibody status and, and what they found when they did their univariate analysis on and multivariate analysis on that data, they found that um, that, that there was a, a risk associated with low antibody levels. But to the best of my knowledge, it's it's not something that that you know a rock curve analysis been applied to where you could say above and below a certain um, uh, serological status that horse is at risk or not at risk. Um, if, if you see what I mean, this was this was work that was done on a large proportion of horses. So I think there would be an awful lot of work needed done on that to determine the the not necessarily the diagnostic use of that test, but the use of that test on a clinical basis to see whether horses are at risk or not. Um, and that work might might come out over over the next few years. I think the second problem is that it's not a test that's readily available on a commercial basis. Um, so this was a, a, an antibody ELISA that, that was set up through the, the, the microbiology department at Edinburgh that they used for their initial work and I believe it's them that did the, the ELISA analysis on, on those samples. Um, so it's, it's not really a test that we could submit to a, a local laboratory and, and, and ask for, um, for Clostridium botulinum antibodies and then furthermore to try and interpret that data I think it would be really hard. Okay um, so it's not a black and white picture? It's not a black and white picture no, no there certainly does seem to be an association um, between low antibody status and risk of disease um, but it's not it doesn't seem to be the whole story and, and I think to get a single uh, result in front of you and then be able to interpret that in light of the risk of that horse I think would be a difficult thing without some more perspective work and you know looking at the, the robustness of that test if you like on a prospective basis. Okay and um, there's a new field trial into the, the vaccine against grass sickness that I believe yes. you're involved in. Could you briefly tell us about about this? Yeah so this was I, I, it was largely off the back of, of, of that that worked partly and, and you know, so this is what coming out of Liverpool, but, but also um, off the back of um, two reportedly successful vaccine trials that were done uh, or conducted in the UK back in, in the 1920s and 20, uh, 22 and 23, um, where they vaccinated a large number of horses uh, with um, Clostridium botulinum um, toxin antitoxin mixture, so uh, effectively like a toxoid. And, and, um, and certainly looking at the data, it looked like they afforded protection to those horses. So in the second trial, um, 
they, they seem to reduce mortality rate down from, from 8% down to about 1.5% or something like that. So there was a significant drop in mortality rate. And then one of the great mysteries of this disease is that, you know, that why then was that work um, discounted from, from that point onwards? And, and really, if you read any of the literature from the 1920s onwards, then there's either no mention of that work by, by Tucker and colleagues or <clears throat> there's literally a couple of sentences more or less saying that this was considered to be a, uh, an etiological hypothesis at one time, but that's now been discounted and, and without really any evidence why it had been discounted or, or valid evidence. So so that, that kind of lay in the archives for a while. So so you can't ignore the potential success of that. So so that, that plus the serological data. So if, if you look at all the risk factors for grass sickness, um, and you say, well, okay, we, we talked about the potential use of those risk factors uh, when you're implementing um, or implementing them in risk avoidance strategies. <clears throat> it's actually quite disappointing because a lot of them you can do nothing about. You can't change spring into winter. You can't change a four-year-old into a 20-year-old for the springtime. Um, you know, there's a lot of these that are not manipulable. Um, and then when you look at the ones that are manipulable, then obviously serological status is manipulable through vaccination. So, so th that is one risk factor where you know, if, if you wanted to act in a positive fashion on that and alter the, the serological status of those <coughs> horses in general, uh, and that was shown to, to afford protection, then you know that that that's something that was considered worthwhile doing. So, so so th that that trial. Uh, uh, if you like, a kind of feasibility study has already been conducted on a, on a small number of horses, I think just under 50 horses and 50 um, controls or, or placebo recipients. Uh, and now the, the larger trial is underway where, where you're looking at a tenfold increase in the number of horses that are, are being recruited onto that. And they're still at the recruitment stage and that recruitment is largely done through the Animal Health Trust, through Joe Ireland um, or uh, through um, the, the equine Grass Sickness Fund um, here at Edinburgh, who, who would then refer those cases on to Joe. Um, and there's certain criteria that horses have to fulfill in order to be recruited onto that trial. But <clears throat> to the best of my knowledge, they're still at the recruitment stage as well, even though the trial is underway. So over the next two to three years, they're, they're looking at vaccinating um, 500 horses and, and 500 placebo recipients, which is the numbers that are necessary really to to establish whether the vaccine will show any protective effect or not. And the, the 50 and 50 were really just to identify teething problems and, and uh, allow more accurate cost analysis and what have you to be done. And that, that wasn't really conducted with a view to, to interpreting the data. Uh, that, that can only be done in a larger cohort of horses. Okay. And where would we go to read more about this trial? Um, you can... Um, the, probably the best place to go is, is onto the Equine Grass Sickness Fund. Um, they, they have a web page. Um, so if you're just to Google Equine Grass Sickness Fund, um, that would take you onto their their web page and they would have a, a little leaflet there that would tell you a little bit more about the trial and it would give you the contact details of, of Joe Ireland at the, at the Animal Health Trust. Okay, so Scott. Directly. That's great. Thanks very much for your time. Not at all. I'm now joined by Dr. Barbara Murphy, a lecturer in equine science at University College Dublin, with a research interest in the study of clock genes that control biological rhythms in animals. Hi Barbara, thanks for joining us today. Firstly, could you tell us how you started investigating the light mask with respect to advancing the mare's breeding season? 
Well, our first study that we conducted in 2012 looked at identifying how much light is necessary to inhibit the hormone melatonin in the circulation of the mare. So melatonin is a key hormone in the reproductive system of horses. Because they're seasonal breeders, they, they are naturally reproductively active during the longest days of the year and melatonin is a hormone which regulates this because melatonin is produced during the hours of darkness and when there is a long duration of melatonin during the long winter months this inhibits the reproductive access in the mare by inhibiting the release of GnRH hormone from the hypothalamus. So the first thing we know is that light inhibits melatonin and we've used this information for decades by putting our mares under artificial lights in the stables about the 1st of December so that 8 to 10 weeks later they would be reproductively active in time for the start of the breeding season. But for the longest time we didn't know exactly how much light was necessary and my, I, my original interest was do we really need to give this light to both eyes? Could we inhibit melatonin with light to just one eye? So our first study looked at putting light masks, headpieces fitted with LED lights on mares and shining different intensities of light into one eye or two eyes. And we do it for an hour, take a blood sample and look at melatonin levels. And really the eureka moment was that finding that very low intensity blue light given to one eye has exactly the same effect on melatonin as leaving the lights on in a, a brightly lit stable. So this really was um, our first publication and from that it gave rise to the field trial that is being published um, in EVJ in September. So for this trial, what we did was we approached a commercial breeding farm um, along with collaborating with the University of Kentucky and we looked at providing light uh, on a light mask for two months starting on the 1st of December to mares either out in a field, so non-pregnant non thoroughbred mares that were kept at pasture from the 1st of December, fitted with um, leather headpieces at the time. Our prototypes were, were rather crude in the first study. And we the light came on, was battery operated, came on at 4.30 until 11 o'clock each day, providing them with a 16-hour day. Um, the idea being it would inhibit melatonin and after six to eight weeks of priming the, re the hypothalamus, um, GnRH levels would increase, um, follicular activity would be stimulated via FSH and LH and the mare's ovulations would be advanced. We had two control groups, a positive control group of uh, 16 mares that were maintained indoors under lights in a stable, so they were rugged up. Uh, well fed and um, had the stable lights on over them until 11 o'clock each night and a negative control group where we had 20 non-pregnant mares outdoors without any lighting. So we had veterinary participation from Dr. Luke Fallon at Haggard Equine Medical Centre and he conducted um, ultrasound palpations 
every um, 10 days beginning on November 20th. So we looked at their follicular activity, um, their ovarian tone, uterine tone, fluid, etc., as well as taking blood samples every week to look at their progesterone profiles. So we compared um, their follicular activity with their progesterone profiles and determined on the 10th of February the proportion of mares in each group that were either cycling, defined as confirmed ovulation with a clear CL and a, and a progesterone level greater than one nanogram per mil, transitional, which was a uh, follicles greater than three centimeters, um, but without any evidence of the first ovulation of the season, or um, anestrus, which means small, hard ovaries, no progesterone levels, no follicular activity apparent on ultrasound. And basically, the results showed that between the mares in the barn under lights and our mares outside with the light masks, there was no difference in reproductive activity, that approximately 80% in each group had had their first ovulation of the season. And this compared to our control group that were outside without lights that showed that only 20% of these mares had ovulated, which is... Um, similar to all the studies we've seen in horses that about 20% of mares continue to be reproductively active all year round, which is unique to the horse. So basically, this was the first evidence um, that we could see that light to one eye, very low intensity light, and I must um, mention that the prototypes we used in this first study were a little bit crude and occasionally fell off regularly. So um, my master's student, Caroline Walsh, was wandering around the paddocks in the afternoon, putting these masks back on um, when they came off every evening. So she did a great job and the results were very positive. So since then, we, um, we have had many beta tests sites on multiple commercial farms around the world and clearly shown that we can repeat this and that 85 to 90 percent of mares respond positively to a single eye mobile lighting. The big thing, of course, is they're healthier outside. Um, for mares that have issues with stereotypic behavior, don't do well in stables, makes a lot more sense for them to be outside. And of course, it, it saves quite a lot of uh, money on bedding and labor um, for the breeders. So it seems to be working very well. And there's been quite a positive uptake on this application. Good. And what kind of financial advantages um, per mare would you find when using the mask? Well, we had to do this very carefully and get average costs of keeping barren mares on the different countries per day. And recently, the Irish Thoroughbred Breeders Association calculated an average indoor keep cost of about 20 euro per day. So I guess about 17 pounds or 18 pounds. Now, this was probably on the, the lower end of the scale when you compare the, the boarding fees for a day rate at most commercial farms. But the minimum amount of time you're going to keep um, your dry mare, your barren mare indoors is approximately 100 days. Because if you imagine that you put them under lights starting on the 1st of 
December. And if all things going well, they are bred on the 15th of February, the start of the breeding season. You're going to maintain them indoors under lights until they're at least scanned in full at the 14, 15 day scan. So that adds up to a minimum of 100 days. So all told, that's about 2000 euro in cost. Um, and obviously, if they stay outside, you still need to feed them. So you're still factoring in about 500 euro in, in feed costs per mare. But using a light mask, you save roughly over a thousand euro or a thousand pounds per mare per season by maintaining them outdoors. OK. And how much is each uh, light mask being sold for? Um, last year, they sold for 395 pounds. Um, I believe, I'm not sure yet what, what the price will be this year. It probably will be much the same, if maybe a little bit less. Um, and really, the, the cost savings are, are pretty immense. Um, we make sure, of course, that the company that is involved in this um, replaces anything. Because mares, the hardest part in, in the development of the light mask is actually finding a design that's comfortable, durable, and um, up to withstanding life in a field. With so horses are pretty destructive, so we stand over and and replace anything that that gets destroyed by a mare in a field, so that you have the technology for the season. Okay, and that's just for the one season. Do you need to buy a new mask for each season? Or you do. Um, you. There's a five-month battery. When we initially did the trial, our batteries only lasted two weeks, and then you had to go out and replace them. And we considered trying to use rechargeable batteries, but that would require having a rechargeable unit on each farm, and every two to three weeks having to replace the units, open up the, the electronics, and replace the batteries. We were concerned that um, people on large farms wouldn't remember to change the batteries every two weeks, that there might be a problem. And also we found that every time you opened up the unit, there was um, a risk of moisture getting in. And moisture is the biggest problem with these electronics that are out all in all weather. So it had to be sealed. So we worked quite hard to try and find the most powerful battery we could. We fused it specifically to avoid any chances of meltdown or heat being emitted, obviously, as it's it's on a horse. So we put a lot of energy into um, getting a battery that would at least last as long as anyone would need for the entire season without the risk of moisture getting in. So right now, um, it is a five-month battery. If your mare is covered early and you have her back in full, you can turn it off and use it on her when she's pregnant the following year. Um, but for right now, it, it is a one-time five-month use. Okay, thanks, Barbara. And what other applications are you working on for the light mask? Well, we have uh, several other success stories with regard to the pregnant mare and Back in 1982, um, there was a study published that showed if you put your pregnant mares under lights on the 1st of December, so for about two to three months before their due dates in March, late February and on to March, you could reduce their gestation length by 10 days. It's very interesting that mares that fold during the natural breeding season, June, July and August, have a pregnancy length of 335 days, but the average for the thoroughbred mare is 345 days. The biggest problem, however, is that about 20% of our mares go over by 
by um, 20 to 30 days each year. So 355 days and longer is a big problem for breeders because they lose that one month window necessary to get their mare back in foal so that they have a foal at the same time next year. So what is normal on farms is that there's quite poor um, efficiency in that there's this constant drift in mares having a later foal each year so that eventually it's not economical to put the mare back in foal and she's rested for a year. So you're losing productivity over the lifetime of the mare. So we found this uh, very interesting and now that we had mobile lighting, we did a number of studies on large farms where we basically looked at mares that had a a history of a pregnancy of 345 days or longer, and we put light masks on them and showed that the average reduction was about 11 days. So similar to the study um, using regular stable lights, if you put your pregnant mares and, and attach, provide the light mask to them, Three, two to three months before she folds, we're determining, I think, that 75 to 90 days is optimum. You'll find a redu- reduction in gestation length, particularly in mares, older mares with large uteri, uteruses that go way over their time. So that has been very interesting. And a, a second application for the pregnant mares, the average full birth weight appears to increase. We've seen, we had a study at the University of Kentucky where we had 30 pregnant mares all inseminated with the same semen, so it controlled for the sire effect, all due around the same time within a two-week window. We um, divided them according to body weight and age, etc., and used light masks on half of them for the 1st of December. We weighed the foals at birth, and there was an average um, increase in foal birth weight of four kilos between the mares that wore the light masks and the mares that were under natural photo period. So all you're actually doing is giving the mare the environmental stimulus it would receive if it had been foaling June, July and August when is natural. So what light does is it increases GNRH levels and all the downstream hormones associated with um, the summer months. So growth hormone, IGF-1, prolactin, and all these hormones increase in circulation and basically tell the fetus in utero it's the right time of year to be born. So it seems to The current theory is that the light stimulus and the change in hormones trigger that that final development of the foal in utero so that it develops at the normal pace, so it runs out of room in utero sooner than it would in the absence of light, and the the foal is born at its optimal foal birth weight and in a shorter time. So shortened gestation length correlates with a heavier foal, which is counterintuitive to many people, but makes sense when you think about the environmental stimulus. Okay, so it sounds like it has many useful uses. Well, thank you for that, Barbara, and thank you for your time. Um, I'm sure we'll be seeing an increase in the use of this mask in the UK very soon. So thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. So that's it from us. I hope you've enjoyed our first EBJ podcast. Thanks for listening and please tune in again for November's edition.